Hi, this is George Denholm. And this is Dustin Weber. Welcome to the 5x2 podcast, where each week we discuss Christian discipleship. We hope that you'll find this podcast interesting and informative, but also challenging as you strive to grow in your discipleship to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. During this episode, we continue the series on Lent, and Pastor Adam joins us again as we discuss the Lenten sermon series. Now remember, folks, that during Lent we're doing some special things, both in terms of our sermon series, but also we've got a devotional booklet written by our members for our members, and you can pick that up in a hard copy in our church lobby or our main lobby, but you can also get that sent to your phone if you text the word Lent, L-E-N-T, to 812 2300. That's our standard texting number from St. Peter's, but when you put in a keyword like Lent, you'll get a specific text for that event. In that text that you would get for the Lenten devotions, you'll also find a link within there that you can click and listen to that podcast, or you can go to the website or your podcast provider and click on podcasts, and you'll see the list of not only our Grow 5 by 2 podcast, but also 47 individual devotions. So those of you that went last week and you went clicking around, you probably saw a whole lot of extra podcasts. Those are our devotions. You can listen to those there. You can get them delivered to your phone a lot of ways. We want to equip you as you make this Lenten journey. As we're talking about the Lenten journey, we are looking at the book of Exodus. And so Adam, do you just want to kind of introduce a little bit about what we're talking about today and we can then jump into the topic? Yeah, so during the season of Lent here at St. Peter's, we are walking through the book of Exodus in several different ways. One is those devotions. Uh, The other way is through the sermon series. So uh, on Wednesdays, Wednesday evening, Lenten services, we'll be walking through the book of Exodus. But we also thought here um, on the podcast would be a great way to kind of dive a little bit deeper into the text that's going to be preached on in the upcoming Wednesday midweek service. So if you were able to join us for Ash Wednesday. Pastor John kind of kicked off the series for us, talking about those great one-liners at the beginning of books and how every story starts with a good one-liner that is able to draw you in. And then he transitioned to really talking about what Ash Wednesday is all about and talked about the fact that in Lent, we cry out to God that something is not right here, that sin is still in this world. We mark ourselves with ashes. We remind ourselves that we are mortal beings And we remind ourselves that one day God will come back through the person of Jesus and he will make all wrongs right. And that's why we do the ashes in the shape of the cross. But for this upcoming Wednesday, we're going to kind of zero back a little bit to Exodus chapter one. And I kind of want to open up this time here, digging into Exodus chapter one, bringing us to another well-known story, Romeo and Juliet. Do we remember the story? Remember reading this story or at least... Uh, I've read the story. The story. I've read the story in the original version by Shakespeare, and it's not nearly as good as West Side Story or what are the other twelve variations of it. Uh-huh. It's any time you've got two arguing families and there's lovers between them, which has been repeated many times in many different places. I, I can't remember the names of the original families. The Mon- Capulets and Montagues. Montagues. So the point is that you have Romeo and Juliet from two different families, two families that hate each other. But ultimately, one of the lessons coming out of that is that last names don't matter, right? That the names that they share, though they are warring families, Romeo and Juliet die by projecting out to everybody that names don't matter, that they can love each other, which is cute. But Exodus doesn't start out that way right? The whole book of Exodus is actually that names absolutely matter. You'll get all of these names in Exodus chapter one, but ultimately 
you get the name of God himself, Yahweh, which all of us are marked by. And that is the name that ultimately will come out of the book of Exodus. And Exodus is really one of the greatest books of the Old Testament in projecting and describing to us who Yahweh is on a personal basis. Yahweh is not a title in the book of Exodus. Yahweh is a personal name given to God's people and God's God. So, Dustin, you want to kind of read through some verses here? And, you know, I guess, George, if you got an insight, go ahead and stop them, and we're going to see where we can go from here. All right, so we're not going to be rude when we interrupt Dustin to interject. No, very, very lovingly in a very Christian way. All right, great. All right, so we'll start here. We got Exodus chapter 1. These are the names. Stop! We're we're already stopping. Oh, good grief. Here it starts. (laughs) No, so if you were in worship with us, or if you weren't, I think it's very important to know that the very first word in Hebrew in Exodus chapter 1 is what's called a vav, which is a conjunction and usually is translated and. Um, It can also be translated now or some other conjunctions, but I think the best way is to translate it and. And I think that's important because Genesis is so interlinked to Exodus that Exodus starts off with and, right? Exodus starts off assuming that you know how Genesis ends. So to kind of catch us up on how Genesis ends, here is the very last verse of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verse 26. The whole book of Genesis concludes this way. So Joseph died at the age of 110, And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. You know, so what's important to know is that Joseph is in this casket. He's dead in Egypt. And ultimately, that's where we're going to find the Israelites. The Israelites are really as close to dead as you can get in their enslavement to the Egyptian people. So what happens to Joseph? is ultimately what's going to happen to God's people in Egypt. So I won't stop you after a couple words, but keep on going. George, anything to add there? Not yet. I'm going to add after the first paragraph. I'll let you read the first paragraph, though. Okay, we're still making a little bit of progress. We do have 25 minutes, guys. Yeah, we do, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So the thing I wanted to stop with there, you've got all 12 sons if you count them, Joseph being separate because he was already there. There'll be later times when we see the tribes of Israel, it'll be listed differently because Levi becomes a special tribe. They're the servants of God. And Joseph actually gets the double blessing, the double blessing that would have normally gone to the oldest child. Joseph gets that double blessing because he's the favorite son, and his two sons that we'll see about later on, Ephraim and Manasseh, become tribes of Israel. So when you look at different sections in the Old Testament, you'll see the tribes numbered differently. We can get into sometime about how the book of Revelation has a whole different naming of the 12 tribes, but that's farther down the line. So let's go ahead. Go ahead and read. All right, so picking up in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So here, if you read the book of Exodus, the author, Moses, who also wrote Genesis, 
assumes that you know the story of Genesis very well, right? Because this links the beginning of the book of Exodus to the beginning of the book of Genesis. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply, right? And that's really one of God's great commissions to the people, right? Is to go and be fruitful and multiply. And he gives that same commission to Noah after the ark. He says, you know what? All right, let's start over. Go be fruitful and multiply. And he gives that promise to Abraham. He says that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. We can see God fulfilling the promise to Abraham here in Exodus here at the beginning of Exodus because they are going out and they're doing exactly what God has intended them to do. And one of the interesting things is that you can see in verse 5, it says all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Why make that mark so distinct? Why 70? Why do we need to know that number? What's interesting is that if you look back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, you kind of have like the table of nations there, right? So Noah's the flood, everything happened afterwards. They started over. Noah dies and they kind of had the table of nations, which is Noah's sons and kind of everything, all the generations after that. If you count them out, do you know how many names there are? 70, right? So again, Exodus assumes that you know Genesis very well. Just another point here that the Bible as a whole, going forward again to Revelation, in Revelation, it talks about the multitude that are in front of the altar that God's people have multiplied, that the promise to Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the sand are fulfilled, that we're all children of Abraham, all those that believe, and there is that multitude before the heavenly throne. Go ahead, Dustin. We're never going to get through this if we don't have a little bit more reading. <laughs> great, great insight, though. All right, so verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So it's so interesting how it starts because then a king, the new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. Again, who's Joseph? We need to go back to Genesis to find out who Joseph is. But verse 8 starts with the core problem of Exodus. There comes somebody that doesn't know God's people. And that is the core of what is happening here is that God's people are being forgotten, which I've always been asked, like, how can somebody forget Joseph? Have you ever been asked that question? Yeah, and one of my answers is that oftentimes in the dynasty changes in Egypt, they'd strike down everything from the previous pharaoh. If they'd have an obelisk with a pharaoh's name on, they'd erase it off. And, and that goes with even Egyptians themselves. Like, you know, when you look at the history, like they say, well, this pharaoh never existed. Well, his name might have been struck off. But also, you can forget what pharaoh has done. How many of us can tell, even go back, not to get political, but what were some of the major laws that Barack Obama passed? And we go, what? I don't know. Just so sometimes we forget the things that even 20 years ago happened, let alone 400 years yeah, verse 9, it makes me kind of feel bad for Pharaoh. You know, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. The Israelites have become too mighty for us. You know, you think forward and like, if the Israelites are already too mighty for you, Pharaoh, think who's coming down the line, right? If God's people are, are too mighty for you, just wait until you deal with God himself. And that's ultimately what Pharaoh's lesson is going to be, right? That God is God and Pharaoh, well, 
is not. He is not. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, Dawson, let's keep on driving here. All right, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Let's just stop here quick. Interesting. The Pharaoh's name, never given. I love this. And yet the two midwives' names are given. Names are important to God. I think you mentioned earlier, names are important to God. And each one of us is known by God. We are his dearly loved children. He knows each one of our names. But in this account... All we hear is the names of the midwives and not that Pharaoh. Yes, those two midwives are somebody. Pharaoh is a nobody to God. And God's enemies are nobody to him. As fathers of Jesus, we can take great refuge in that, right? Sin, death, like the devil himself, he's a nobody to God. Why? Because we are somebody. Like you are named by God. And he remembers your name. And he will make good on his promises. All right, verse 19. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Let's stop there. I was just going to say, this is a key thing here, because later on, a lot of people, you know, they look at this and go, God is just slaughtering people, but it is his justice. Each one of these babies that Pharaoh has killed is somebody to God, and God said, you've taken mine. The justice is the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth idea. You owe me these children of mine that you've destroyed. So when that plague of death comes later on, it's God getting his payment back for what Pharaoh has done to his people. Yeah, it is. This whole chapter one is setting the scene for us for all of the rest of the book of Exodus. You can look at chapter one in kind of like three different stages of what happens to God's people. First, that they're put in slavery, right? We find that in verse 11. Verse 15, we have this like private mass murder, right? It's not public yet. Pharaoh is just talking to the midwives, But once he finds out the midwives aren't doing the job that they asked him to, then it becomes this open onslaught, this mass murder. But again, why are they killing God's people? Because God's people for Pharaoh, one, are too mighty. And two, they pose a security threat to Pharaoh and a financial threat. A security threat because they are so numerous that if a neighboring nation comes and wars with them, the Egyptians realize that they're toast an economic threat because they are what drives the economy of Egypt right now. If the Israelites get up and leave, Egypt has no economy. You know, we could go into all kinds of side issues here. You know, we can have to talk about the immigrants today that many people see as a security threat, as an economic threat. We can look at to the fact that great economies have always been built on the lowest class doing all the work so the upper class can lay back. That's going to be a topic for later on, how we deal with that. But the thought pattern in Egypt is still prevalent today. You know, one of the things that we tell is if you don't look at history, it repeats itself. And so we as people, we ought to know history because the history of God's world after the fall continues to tell us that people will make mistakes. I want to zero in on verse 22 here because verse 22 is really kind of the segue into chapter 2. 
it says at the very end, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Talking about the Hebrew boys, right? All the Hebrew boys are going to be cast into the Nile. What's really interesting is that when you read through chapter two, Moses is cast into the Nile River, but Moses doesn't die. God uses the very river that Pharaoh meant for death to bring life and freedom to his people. You know, God continues to use ordinary means to bring extraordinary results. I think of Paul, right, when he says, I use the foolish things to shame the wise, right? Here, Pharaoh is thinking he's dealing very shrewdly with his people. It says that, but he's not as shrewd as he thinks that he is. Dustin, go ahead and continue. Yeah, so speaking of chapter two, that's where we'll go next here. So verse one in chapter two. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. I love this. So when you get to a devotion in the series written by Evan Ellsbury, he nails this home. There is another boat that has tar and pitch on it. Again, earlier in the book of Genesis, which is the ark, right? Noah's ark. Noah's ark, yes. Not Moses' ark, Noah's ark. But But there's a comparison. Right. So, you know, God saves all of humanity through a much bigger boat with tar and pitch. Once again, God will save his people through a much smaller boat with tar and pitch. And ultimately, that then transitions into the church. And the church is an ark of sorts that looks to save God's people by the name that he gives us here in Exodus, by the name of Yahweh. So again, just hitting the point home to understand Exodus You really need to have read Genesis to kind of get everything that Moses is pulling into it here. I'm going to point a couple things further for as we're going through Exodus. Moses is of the tribe of Levi, which later on are the people that are the spiritual leaders for God's people. And this older sister here is Miriam, who will play a large role later on in the book of Exodus. Go ahead, Dustin. Okay, verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. It's just amazing, again, how God works all these things for his purposes, that the Egyptian princess sees this Hebrew baby, has compassion, then basically adopts him as son, brings him into the court. Now, it's going to have a lot of effect later on because this is where Moses would have learned how to write so we can write Mm -hmm. those first five books of the Bible. It would have taught him some leadership skills for leading the people. He had a great education there, but he never lost his roots because his mom nursed him and I'm sure brought him up to know the way of the Jewish people. You know, only God can put together a story like this and use people from all different types of nations and all different types of people to create this one redeeming salvation event for the Old Testament people. I look at verse 5 and just look at the 
irony of Pharaoh's daughter, one, bathing in the Nile, which Pharaoh used to do what? To kill baby boys, right? So you get this picture that there's like, I don't know, dead babies kind of floating down the Nile, right? Or if they were slaughtered, you get this blood effect that's in the Nile. and But yet Pharaoh's daughter is using that Nile to cleanse herself. To me, that's a bananas picture, right? That you would use the very Nile that you're using to kill people to cleanse yourself. But at the very end where we read verse 10, she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. So once again, God uses water to save his people. And if you fast forward all the way to today, he continues to do the same thing, right? God uses baptism, the ordinary water combined with God's word to save us, to give us the grace from the cross. Baptism is a conduit where grace comes to us. And God says, I'm with you always until the very end of the age. He can say to you the same thing that Pharaoh's daughter said to Moses. He can tell you, I drew you out of the water. Now, those folks that are thinking about our world today, Moses may be a common name. Well, not as common, but it might be the name we would use for uh, children that are born in the United States. But um, if you are a Jewish child, it's Moshe. And so some of the folks that know the history of the Israel, they had a, a prime minister, Moshe Dayan, and that Moshe is the more Hebraic form of Moses. We a lot of times use those Bible names today to kind of mark people to say, hey, this is somebody that was a Bible character that I really admire. I'm going to pick that name for him. Well, there's a handful of Moses. It's kind of surprising how certain names are a lot more popular than others. I have not met a Shifra or a Pua yet, but the, hey... If you are a Shiffer or a Pua, make sure that you email us so that I can meet you. I would love to meet you. <laughs> there is a ton of more that we could dig into here and pull off some different truths, but we're running out of time. So as we've gone through this, maybe we've got a question that popped up as we've read through this and discussed it that you'd like to talk to us about. You can do that by emailing us at gotquestions at stpeters-columbus.org gotquestions at stpeters-columbus.org. We're going to continue our discussion of the book of Exodus as related to the sermon series and related to Lent as we continue to talk to Pastor Adam for the next few weeks. Any last comments, guys, before we go? Just one question I had is we're talking about the sermon series on the Wednesday evenings. If somebody wants to go back and listen to Pastor John's message on Ash Wednesday or if they're listening to this after February 21st service, want to listen to Pastor Tim's message. Is there a way that, that people can go back and listen to that or watch that? Great question. All of the sermons are available in the same place on the website that you get our Grow 5 by 2 podcast. If you go to the resources and there's an option there for podcasts, you scroll down, you can see the sermons, you can see our Grow 5 by 2 uh, you can see the Sunday morning Bible group options, and then also our youth podcast. Yeah, if you go to any place where you get your favorite podcasts, the weekly messages are St. Peter's weekly messages. The St. Peter's Sunday morning Bible groups are, get ready for it, St. Peter's Sunday morning Bible groups. And Grow 5 by 2, here we are, loving it. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody. We look forward to continuing these discipleship conversations throughout Lent. Now go out and serve God and others.